good morning. It is Wednesday, the 27th of May. Welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. Today, we're going to brief you on food delivery riders. What happens when they're late? They just send an email saying that I was about to be terminated from that point on. That's coming up in just a moment. Um, first, I'm joined by Annika Smethurst, who released a new book this week on secrets about the AFP raid and media freedom. Annika, is it flying off the shelves? Well, more so than I thought, but I'm convinced it's just my mum. I'm told it's sold out at Demex and on Amazon, but look, I don't know how many copies they had originally. So, look, I'll have to check with my mum today that she actually hasn't bought every copy in Australia. <laughs> Go, mum. Gotta love a supportive mum. My mum's always chiming in on the briefing Instagram. <laughs> All right, let's get to the big stories of the day. A live export ship has been allowed to dock in Western Australia, despite federal authorities knowing three workers on board did feel unwell. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, I don't want to point fingers at this point in time. We're just trying to find out exactly what has gone on. Obviously, we're very concerned uh, and to a degree disappointed, uh, but we'll try and find out who knew what and when. That's the WA Premier, Mark McGowan. So the al ship left the UAE earlier this month. It docked in Frio on Friday. Uh, The Federal Department of Agriculture was told three of the 48 workers on board were sick, but not with symptoms of COVID-19. So they then gave the ship permission to dock without passing that information on to the local port authorities. Those local authorities then followed normal procedure for docking, which included up to a dozen staff boarding the ship to help with its arrival. Six of the crew have now tested positive and are in a local hotel, while the other 42 workers are still on board and their health is being monitored. Yeah, so the concern here is that the local port authorities who went on board may have come into contact with those confirmed cases. Health officials are now trying to urgently do contact tracing for those workers. And in the meantime, two independent schools in Sydney's eastern suburbs have been shut and kids sent home, just days after schools finally reopened after a student tested positive. A student tested positive in each of those two schools, um, and they're actually quite close to where I live. Um, So that was big news when I saw that come up yesterday. Um, I guess we've heard a lot of these warnings, Annika, about where the second wave might come up. And then on the other hand, we're seeing... New South Wales in particular, really get on the front foot with reopening its schools and other parts of the economy. So that was quite a tense moment yesterday. Yeah, the government said they're not going to go with widespread shutdowns again. So I think we'll see a lot of this sort of small scale, you know, shut down a a local area or one school as we go back uh, into real life. Yeah, it's all about how they deal with these outbreaks, I guess. There's been a big development in the case of an Australian school principal accused of child sexual abuse and rape who left the country more than a decade ago. She may finally be brought back to face charges. Yeah, Malka Leifer flew to Israel shortly after allegations emerged she'd abused three sisters while teaching at an ultra-Orthodox school in Melbourne back in 2008. So police have been trying to bring her back to face 74 charges for six years. Uh, She was found unfit to stand trial due to mental illness and released in 2017 before being arrested again in 2018. Last year, our Attorney General travelled to Israel to try and argue the case for extradition. Overnight, the Jerusalem District Court found that she is mentally fit to face an extradition trial. She's now appealing to the High Court. If it agrees with the District Court, she will finally face an extradition trial and could possibly return to Australia. And Christian Porter, the Attorney General, has welcomed this decision as a positive sign. He says he hopes it gives her alleged victims confidence that proceedings can now commence. We already know that 33 lives were lost in the Australian summer bushfire season, but researchers believe another 445 people likely died as a result of the smoke that blanketed parts of Australia. Wow. Yeah, even the corona pandemic hasn't erased the memories of 
Parliament House, the Harbour Bridge being completely covered by smoke. Uh, The Royal Commission into the bushfires started this week and it's heard that the smoke has had a much bigger impact than the actual flames, uh, certainly on the death toll, according to that estimate. The thing about the smoke is it can travel hundreds of kilometres and linger for days and apparently would have negatively affected around 80% of us. The cost of the tragedy is estimated to be around $3.6 billion and the impact was around 10 times higher than in any previous season. Yeah, that was a shocking number, wasn't it? Over 400 people potentially dead from the smoke. I guess it's just a a wake-up call. We've been so focused on the coronavirus for just how devastating this disaster was over the summer. It feels like ages ago that, you know, air purifiers were rushing off the shelves instead mm. of, you know, people stocking up on tin tomatoes. It's been quite a start to 2020. Now, it wouldn't be the start of an NRL season without some sort of scandal just days before the first game. 19-year-old Sharks player Bronson Sherry got a knock at the door yesterday. It was the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority to tell him he'd allegedly tested positive for multiple performance-enhancing drugs. Shattering. Uh, shattering for the uh, the Sherry family, shattering for NRL. I was only this morning thinking I can't wait to see this kid strut his stuff this season and maybe push for an origin mm. spot. That was league legend Mark Geyer and Sherry was tested back in November and some people are wondering why it took Asada so long to get the results. He can now have his B sample tested, which could clear his name. Yeah, in happier news, though, the season resumes tomorrow with the Eels and the Broncos facing off in front of an empty Suncorp stadium. Yeah, how would you feel if you're Peter Villandis? He's worked so hard to get the league back up and running and just a few days before... The front page of the papers are talking about a, a drug scandal. Yeah, just coming off the back, of course, of the anti-vaxxer stuff. Um, it's really been a big start to the year for NRL. Who knows? Maybe it gets more people watching rugby league. I'll certainly be tuning in. It's exciting to see the season get back underway. Uh, Annika Smathurst, thank you so much for joining us. Right now, Jamila Rizvi joins us to talk about Deliveroo riders and what happens when they're late. Would you have survived the lockdown without food delivery services? These delivery riders and drivers have been essential workers. They've helped us stay socially isolated for the nights where we want to break from cooking. And they've also been the reason that many restaurants have survived. We're about to meet a delivery driver whose supplier contract was terminated last month. He says unfairly. This is a growing issue for a lot of people. Last year, an Australian study found that 13% of the workforce had used a digital platform to find work at some point. That number is expected to grow massively and particularly for young workers. Yeah, the gig economy can be an easy, fast way to find employment, but it is also easier to get let go. There are a bunch of hidden costs to you, so much so that you end up getting paid less than the minimum wage sometimes. Plus, there's no leave entitlements. And it's the most vulnerable workers, among them young people and temporary migrants like Diego Franco, who are most at risk. So Diego Franco is a delivery rider in Sydney. He's a Brazilian on a temporary working visa and him and the Transport Workers Union are are fighting back. They filed an unfair dismissal claim after he was let go by email last month, apparently for slow delivery times. He was given just seven days notice, even though he'd been working for them for three years. Diego, thanks for joining us. How strange and how challenging has it been to be a delivery rider throughout the coronavirus lockdown? Uh, Well, it's been a bit rough on us. Like we have to to work on these strange days and provide for our families to have to be worried at all times with all the restrictions and social distancing. We still have to do our, our job. 
Did your work change much after the coronavirus outbreak, Diego? Did deliveries dry up or was there more work than ever? I know like many people who work in the another industries that now they are working with delivery, delivery companies. So we still have demand, but at this point we have too many people working on those, on those companies. So it's a bit hard. And I know that you and your partner are here on a student visa, which means that you don't get access to income support or JobKeeper. So how has it affected you to not be able to work the job you've been doing for three years? So really frustrating to not be able to to continue working, especially now at this weird and hard time for all of us. But it's, it's really hard as I am the only one that is providing food for the family and have to pay the rent and all the stuffs and we don't have any support at all. Yeah, it's been really, really rough times for us. You and the Transport Workers Union are taking your case to the Fair Work Commission. You're claiming unfair dismissal. What do you think was unfair about the way they fired you? Well, uh, firstly, they communicate me through email saying that I was uh, with some performance issues on my account and they recently advised me about the issue. But in fact, they didn't. They just sent an email saying that I was about to be terminated from that point on, but I didn't get any email from them saying, oh, we were not performing very well. Can we help you out with anything to to get you as you were before or anything like that? They just say that they advised me about the issue, but the main thing is they didn't. So I wasn't aware at all my performance for their account wasn't going that well as was before. Yeah, because they said they they wrote to you in February, essentially warning you. You didn't get any message or email or communication at all? You sure? I'm 100% sure. Diego, what made you want to fight the decision that they've made? It's a brave thing to do that. Well, that's a cause for, for not just from, for me personally. Many other riders around across Australia could be in the same position, but they didn't get listened. So that would be a good way to show them that we will fight if we have to. Diego sounds like he's doing it pretty tough right now without work and supporting his partner and young child. Yeah, so let's find out more about his case and also the broader issue about how we get the right level of protection in this gig economy. Nick McIntosh is the Assistant National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union. They'll be taking Diego's case to the Fair Work Commission. The Transport Workers Union also ran a successful case representing delivery workers against Foodora back in 2018. Nick, thanks for joining us. Where do you think delivery went wrong in their treatment of Diego? Uh, well, we've got to remember that, that this is an essential worker. These are these essential workers the Prime Minister keeps telling us about, that, you know, the unsung heroes of the, of the COVID crisis that are uh, delivering food so people can socially isolate that are on the front line themselves and, and at, at risk of contracting uh, coronavirus. And Deliveroo uh, instead just treats this, um, this rider, Diego, like he's a robot. Diego's given uh, no warning. Uh, he gets no chance to respond. He's not even sacked by a human being, it seems. And he's potentially got 
no legal protections in the matter. And, and this is the unfortunate problem with the gig economy at the moment is that um, it seems to be that algorithms uh, determine what's happening and who gets work and, and, uh, and who's sacked on any given day. Now, Nick, the claim form says that Deliveroo did give Diego a warning back in February. I know he says he didn't get that. How can you be sure that he didn't get the warning? Well, we, we can only take Diego at his word. And to be honest, the onus really should here be on uh, D- Deliveroo to say, well, here's how we gave you the warning. Here's, here's where it is, which we still haven't seen. Even if Diego was given a warning and, and it was lost in an email or moved into the junk email or something, this again proves what the problem is. What needs to happen with any worker is if there's an allegation made of some form of misconduct, they need to have the right to respond and to tell their side of the story uh, and to have that heard. This is just an email that Diego receives saying that he's taken significantly longer to uh, deliver to customers by an unnamed person in a, in a generic email uh, and he's simply uh, sacked. And that, that's, what, that's what's happening here in the gig economy. So there's just a total lack of procedural fairness and, and any thought that we've even got a human being on the other end here. Nick, what is it about these workers, many of whom are temporary migrants, that makes them so particularly vulnerable to exploitation? Well, as we know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to get a, a job as a, as a temporary uh, worker. There's, there's a lot more hoops you have to jump through. And in many instances, the skills that they have from other countries um, aren't necessarily recognised um, by Australia's system and Australia's employers. Uh, now, of course, it's, it's very easy to... Um, to jump on an app, it requires really most of the time the ability just to own and operate a push bike uh, and get from A to B. It's not, while the conditions and things like that drivers have to face are difficult, uh, it's not ever going to be seen as a as a highly skilled job. And, and when you can simply jump on an app uh, and start working without really having to do much more than that, um, it's quite attractive for, for temporary um, work pieces because they don't have to jump through all the normal hoops that they otherwise would. But of course, that makes them particularly vulnerable because at the same time, that just means that, like in this case, the company can uh, treat them however they um, they want to treat them and, and really um, sack them at the, at the stroke of a pen. So it's a situation that needs to be remedied or we're going to keep uh, exploiting people that come to this country and, and try and do the right thing, such as Diego, who's trying to do the right thing in the middle of a national crisis uh, and help people in self-isolation. So what do you think is the right way forward, Nick? Um, this this type of work is only going to grow. There'll be more young people engaging with this digital economy. You won't be able to get all of them on employment contracts. So what's what's the right middle ground to strike here? And and will it come through fighting cases in the Fair Work Commission, like this one or, or like the Fedora case in 2018? Or should it come through legislation? And how would you strike the balance right if that was the case? Uh, the Fedora case a couple of years ago, um, I think that what happened is that the gig economy companies learned from that. So in that case, Josh Kluger, we took a case on behalf of Josh, who was actually in very similar circumstances to Diego. And there's a there's a test that the High Court runs, uh, which is from, ironically enough, 1984, there was a case in the High Court that actually involved bike couriers that um, determined the, the different tests you look at to see if someone's an employee or not. And, and in this particular case, uh, the Fedora case, the, the balance was that Josh was an employee. And a lot of that spanned to the, the control uh, that Fedora had. In that instance, they were working a shift-type system with start and, and finish times. 
uh, and the commission found there was no real way that um, uh, you could call what Josh was doing a, some sort of, of business. It was just that you couldn't expand your, your customer base. There was no real goodwill and there was no real um, great sort of financial incentive because you weren't really going to ever get much more than the minimum wage. Nick, in an economy where wages are pretty stagnant and jobs are increasingly sparse already, is coronavirus going to make this kind of exploitation or unfair treatment worse? Well, look, I think we're already seeing that. I mean, not just in this case, but we're seeing JobKeeper being rorted by by various companies. We're seeing companies using the, this national crisis as an excuse to literally overnight being able to change conditions that have existed for 30 or 40 years at different work sites and in different jobs. So we've really got to be on the lookout. I mean, business groups are now saying that, oh, well, the answer is that we've got to drop minimum wages and we've got to drop certain conditions and they like throwing around the term flexibility. Whenever I hear that, I shudder because normally that just means we want the right to be uh, as flexible in our uh, way we operate as we want, i.e. changing conditions at the drop of a hat uh, to not give you any flexibility, but to, to be able to change things to help us. So the real economic response should be that we actually need to keep the wages and conditions of the lowest uh, and middle uh, classes up so that so that there's some demand in the economy, which is missing right now. But uh, instead, we hear what we heard, unfortunately, during the Great Depression from employer groups, and, and which is what prolonged depression, which is, oh, no, no, now's the time we've got to cut wages and conditions. So we've got to be very careful of this economic argument, but it's a real problem in the current COVID crisis that uh, we've got to make sure it's not an excuse for employers and, and people trying to do the wrong thing to come in and exploit people. That was Nick McIntosh. He's the Assistant National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union. And clearly from what he was saying there, Jamila, it's going to be really complex to find ways of protecting these workers whilst also taking advantage of this growing technology-driven sector. Yeah, I just hope that we can work our way to a solution, a new legal framework perhaps, where workers aren't treated like they're disposable. The idea that someone can earn $20 an hour and then have to pay their petrol, their bike repairs, their insurance, and that gets whittled down to almost nothing. That's not the kind of Australia I want to live in. And we asked Deliveroo to give us an interview to tell their side of the story on Diego Franco's termination. Um, they declined the offer of an interview, but they have given us a detailed statement which basically says they believe they've done the right thing here. They said, in this instance, the supplier agreement was terminated because of a high number of orders delivered on the rider account were taking significantly longer to reach our customers than we expected. We confirm that in the three months prior to the termination notice, Deliveroo notified Mr. Franco twice regarding poor delivery outcomes. In a six-week period prior to the termination notice, his delivery performance was significantly poorer than the average of the riders in the same area using the same type of vehicle. We understand Mr. Franco's position and are empathetic towards the concerns he's raised. However, based on the reasons outlined above, we're not able to reinstate his service agreement. They also said that timely delivery is crucial for their customers who often don't come back if they've experienced late deliveries, which then impacts on other riders and also the restaurants. They also said it's not an algorithm that makes the decision to terminate a contract, that a human being actually looks at a range of information before making that decision. So there you go. Basically, it's Deliveroo's word against Diego's. He says there were no warnings. They say there were two warnings be really interesting to see how that plays out in the Fair Work Commission. Thank you so much for listening. A deep 
ongoing issue there as we try and work out how to treat those workers fairly, especially at a time where they've been really important to so many of us. Thank you so much for listening to The Briefing today. I'll catch you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.